Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll be continuing where we left off last week. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13 this morning. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. If you would just join me in prayer one more time. Sanctify us in your word, O Lord. Your word is truth. Show us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The date was January 6th, 1850. And a young 15-year-old boy was trying to make his way to church. However, he was caught in a terrible snowstorm. In fact, it was snowing so heavily, the blizzard was so bad that he couldn't make it all the way to the church that he was going to. So along the way, he noticed this small Methodist chapel and he sauntered in uh, to join the service over there. There were about 15 people in attendance and the person who was supposed to preach, the pastor of the church, was also caught in the snowstorm and couldn't make it to church. So when the time came for the sermon to be given, uh, one uh, cobbler or shoemaker who was there, uh, he said he might have been a cobbler or a tailor, he was a poor man, he got up to give the sermon and he had for his sermon text Isaiah 45 verse 22 which says, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And this man, not being very well-educated or well-versed with the art of preaching, just decided to go on for 10 minutes, trying to plead with the people there to look to Christ. So he kept repeating, look unto him. You over there, look unto Christ. Look to him and be saved. Look to him, look to him. Look to him sweating blood in the garden. Look to him hanging on the cross. And then all of a sudden, his eyes fixated on this 15-year-old boy at the back of the church. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. And indeed, you will be miserable in life and in death unless you obey the text that I am preaching today. Look to Christ and be saved. And the young man says, then and there, The cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. One verse of Scripture preached faithfully. A life transformed. Not just one life transformed, but that young man, if you haven't realized it already, went on to be, he was Charles Spurgeon, and he went on to be one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, preached to thousands upon thousands of people, thousands of sermons, and the word of God went forth through Spurgeon to bring people from darkness to light with the power of God. Friends, this morning we are looking in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 at the power of and the might of the Word of God. And as we encounter God's Word, 
May we grow in our reverence of, for the Scripture and for the God who has spoken in the Scriptures, the God who ensures that no word of His fails, but that all is fulfilled. So today as we look at this text, we're going to look at three features of God's Word that demand our reverence. Three reasons why we must revere the Word of God and obey it in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. First, the Word of God is living. Let me read to you Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So first, we must obey and revere God's word because the word of God is living. It is alive. Now, you might remember the context in the letter to the Hebrews that we're in. Like I've told you, this was a sermon preached to weary Christians who were tempted to give up their faith. And the last two weeks, we've been seeing Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. The author has been unpacking one portion of Scripture and applying it to these people. He was looking at Psalm 95. And the author says, concerning Psalm 95, today... If you hear his voice, he says the Holy Spirit speaks through Psalm 95, through the words of David. And the author says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then chapter 4, he told us to fear so that none of us may fall short of entering God's rest. Uh, verse 11, the last verse that we saw last week, he says, let us be eager, let us strive to enter God's rest so that no one may fall by the example of disobedience that we saw in the wilderness. And it's in that context that he says, because the word of God is living. Let us strive to enter God's rest. Make sure that we don't harden our hearts because the word of God is alive. So in other words, the author is saying, what you've heard the warnings that I'm putting before you, the things that I am speaking to you, are not empty words. This uh, passage from Scripture, Psalm 95, that was written a thousand years ago, that comes to you today, these are not just old words that are irrelevant. No, when you hear the Scripture, when we read the Bible, you are hearing the very voice of God Almighty Himself. And these people were faced with the Temptation to throw it all away, to give up their faith. And the author says, no, David's words from Psalm 95, all of the Bible are true for us, are real for us, are still alive and meaningful for us today. So first he calls the word of God living. That word is emphasized, actually, in the original language, in that sentence there, living. In fact, you might recall from last, the last couple of weeks that the word living, this adjective living, is one that the author of Hebrews uses concerning God himself. 
again and again, throughout this letter, in fact, if you've read the whole of Hebrews, you'll see that the author calls God the living God. In fact, that's one of his favorite titles for God in the letter to the Hebrews, the living God. So Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Or again in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31, actually a very terrifying warning passage with terrifying words. He says, it is a terrifying thing, it is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, living God. Again, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the God whom we worship, the God of the Bible, our creator God, is no statue, he's no inert force, no, he is living, personal, alive. He's the source of all life, and he is the life giver, and so also is his word. His word is living. God is the living God who speaks, and scripture, the Bible, is the very word. These words are the words of the living God himself, living words. You know, we hold to the doctrine of biblical inspiration uh, in which we affirm what is called the full verbal inspiration of Scripture. That means every word of Scripture is given by God. We have human authors who wrote the Scripture, over 40 men, over a long period of time, thousands of years, wrote down various books for us, but God the Holy Spirit, God himself, works through these authors in his sovereign power so that every word that they wrote exactly is the word that he intends. That's the doctrine of full verbal inspiration. That means every word of the text, the conjunctions, the, the grammar of the text, all of it, is given to us by God. It's not that the biblical authors, you know, had some thoughts or were inspired internally in some way and then wrote it down in their own words. No. Every word that they wrote is planned and perfectly revealed by God. So that what they wrote is His word. And that means that as long as God lives, as, much, as far as God is living, His word lives. His word is alive. Maybe you've heard the awesome story of the great American missionary, Adoniram Judson. He was the first missionary to be sent from America. He went to, or first to India and then to Burma in the early 19th century. 1813 was the year, I believe. And then he spent years there translating the Bible into the Burmese language out of the original languages, into the Burmese language. It took him seven years to get the New Testament done. It took him more than a decade to get both the Old and New Testaments done. He faced great suffering. They faced great suffering that he lost 
his wife, he lost, they lost two children. He married again, lost his second wife, was afflicted with great trials. It was eight years before he saw one person come to faith in Christ. In between, he went into deep depression. And also, at the time, the Burmese government thought that he was a spy and arrested him while he was in the middle of his translation work. And he was put into deep, dark prison with terrible conditions, hanging on to life by a mere thread. And while he was in prison, his wife, Anne, was concerned that the government would confiscate and seize the translation of the scriptures that he was working on. So she took the manuscript of the New Testament that he had been translating and buried it in a garden uh, in, in the, near the house. She buried the uh, manuscript of the Bible in this garden. Of course, Judson was later released from prison, came, dug it out, and finished his translation work. Uh, some years ago, I was in Kentucky studying in seminary, and I was walking, uh, you know, just walking through the campus, and I came upon this uh, little man, and I, I mean, I'm a short guy, this guy was even shorter. Uh, he looked Asian, so I went up to talk to him. Don't see a lot of Asians there, and I asked him, hey, what's your name? He said, my name is Lampi. I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Burma, Myanmar. And I said, oh, you know what, I've just been reading, I was reading the biography of Judson. I said, I've been reading uh, Adoniram Judson's biography. Uh, and he said, oh yeah, we still use his translation of the Bible in Burmese. You know, Judson's body is buried. He's gone to be with the Lord. But 150 years later, the word of God that once was buried is still alive and working. As God lives, His Word lives. To call the Word of God living also means that the living God is present with His Word. His powerful presence attends His Word. As one person put, God's living presence empowers His Word. His Word is living because He is living and He is always with His Word. You meet God when you come to His Word. You know, one pastor illustrated it this way. You might have uh, the desire to read a biography. I just mentioned Adoniram Judson. And I can read all about him. I can even read some things that he wrote. I can learn about his life, how he came to faith in Christ, how he went to the mission field, how the Lord used him there, how he persevered through many trials and afflictions. And even as I read about him, read what he wrote, there's one thing that's guaranteed. I'm never going to meet him. Not in this life. <laughs> You'll never meet him. But when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible and hear the living word of God preached and taught, you meet its author. You meet God himself. Friends, when the Bible speaks... The living God speaks. And so this ought to then affect how we come to God's word. We, had, we have to recognize that when we read the Bible, when we hear the Bible taught, 
when the Bible is preached faithfully, that we are encountering its author. We are having a face-to-face encounter through God's word with the living God himself. In fact, this is the primary and central way to meet with God. You're not just hearing something about God. You're not just reading something about God. No, you are meeting the God of whom you read, the God whom you hear preached. You know, in our day and age, people have grown very fascinated with and always want some kind of an encounter with God, some kind of a divine encounter. And sadly, uh, even among evangelicals, we have gone in this direction of expecting some kind of encounter or trying to manufacture some kind of encounter apart from God's Word. So lights all off, dimmed lights, try to make sure the mood and the atmosphere is just right, close your eyes, and then just sing some song whose words don't really reflect the truths of Scripture, repeat the same lines over and over again, and people think that they're having some kind of encounter with God. Well, friends, that's not the medium. That's not how an encounter with God takes place. We can't manufacture this apart from God's Word. We encounter the living God through the living Word, and His Word is alive. His word has the power to give life. His word gives new life. Think about Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus, the son of God himself, standing at the tomb of the dead man, and he asks for the stone to be rolled away, and then he speaks three words, Lazarus, come forth, and with three words from the mouth of the son of God, the man who has been dead for four days comes to life and comes out of the grave. This word is living And it gives life. It has the power to give life. And that leads to the second feature of Scripture here, which should move us to revere it and obey it. We must revere God's Word not only because it is living, but also because the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. Do you see that in the text? It says the Word of God is living and active. And the word active there means that it is powerful. It's explosive. So the story is told of uh, two evangelists who were uh, in Lebanon, and they were traveling in a vehicle to go do some evangelistic event, and they had boxes filled with Bibles in the back of the vehicle. And uh, at at this particular time, uh, Lebanon was actually occupied by the Syrian army. So it's very tight controls, very dangerous, and you had to go through various checkpoints where the army would, you know, check out what you're doing. And these evangelists in their vehicle, they come up to this checkpoint, and the uh, Syrian soldier points a rifle into the vehicle and says, what are you doing, where are you going, and what are these boxes in the back? And one of the evangelists very boldly replied, sir, these boxes are filled with dynamite. And uh, the uh, Syrian army officer is, you know, befuddled, What's going on? And so then he reaches back and pulls out the Bible and gives it to him and says, this is what I mean. Read this and it will break into your life with God's own power. This is the dynamite of which I speak. The word of God is powerful. As one person said, it's the most powerful force in the universe for reformation and revival, for hope and joy, for peace 
and salvation. And it is powerful because God always does what He says. God always accomplishes every word that He has spoken. God's word never falls to the ground, but is always fulfilled. He stands behind His word to ensure that He accomplishes what He intends by His word. Think about the power of God, God's word. Think about it right from the beginning. In the beginning, there was nothing. Darkness. The earth was formless and void. And God said, let there be light. God's word, let there be light. And the lights come on. And God keeps speaking. And where there was absolutely nothing, all of a sudden now... There are stars and galaxies and the Milky Way and planets. And God keeps on speaking. And there's the earth with vegetation, with trees of all kinds, palm trees, beaches, mountains. There are oceans teeming with life with millions of sea creatures that even now we haven't discovered. God speaks and it all comes to be. And then God keeps on speaking his word. As human beings fall and sin, God speaks his plans of salvation. He keeps on speaking. He gives us his redemptive word and he unfolds his plan of salvation. Every promise proves true. Every warning comes to pass. God's word continues through the ages, through the centuries and then is fulfilled in the incarnate word of God. Jesus himself, the word who was eternally with God, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And he died on the cross to save sinners in fulfillment of God's promises, rose from the dead, is ascended into heaven, pours out his Holy Spirit, and then from the finished work of Christ, that spirit gives us the New Testament. Every word of God proves true. And you know this by experience if you are in Christ because that word came to you. And you were in darkness. And God said, let there be light. And the lights came on. As one person put it, by other books, the heart is warmed. But only by this book can the heart be transformed. I don't know what you're going through this morning, whether it's worry and anxiety or some sin that you've been battling. Maybe your heart has been growing cold or maybe you've even been experiencing some kind of hardness of heart. Maybe there's great sorrow or turmoil that you're facing. I want to tell you, God's word has the power to strengthen you. God's word has the power to comfort you. God's word has the power to change your life. God's word has the power to empower you to defeat any sin. He has the power to draw you to himself. I want to speak to the kids. Children, this is a truth for you. As you sit under God's word... As you read your Bibles, as you hear God's word taught, as you listen to preaching, God's word has the power to give you new hearts and transform the lives of little children. 
And so we ought to revere God's word. We ought not to come to his word casually, as if we were doing some kind of trivial thing. No, we ought to come to his word with reverence and a humble heart and an eager hunger to experience its life-giving power. This is also why God's word must be central in the church. It is the word of God that is living and powerful, active and alive. And his word must rule over his church. We don't need in the church to try to grow the church through our own wisdom, to come up with some kind of techniques or gimmicks, or try to manufacture some kind of experience, or try to do whatever we can to make the church attractive to others. We don't even need some kind of big, grand vision. No, we don't need to change the, turn the church into some kind of Hollywood show, or provide entertainment, or try to manufacture a worship experience. No, we put the Word at the center, and let the Word dictate all that we do. And let all our lives be shaped by, its, by, by the word of God. This is why, praise God, expositional preaching is what we practice here at ECC and what has been practiced for decades. Which means that each week, the main point of the sermon, of what is being preached, is the main point of scripture. Is the message of the text. The text rules the day. We're not giving life lessons here. We're coming to God's word. This is why our worship gatherings are structured the way that they are. Every song must be true to what Scripture says. It's all shaped by the Word, centered around the Word. The Word rules it all. How we do church, all that we do in church, is simple. All we need to do is put God's Word at the center. God's word has the power to change lives. You think about Martin Luther, think about the Protestant Reformation, where 500 years ago, the whole world was in darkness. The Roman Catholic Church at the time was putting people to death if they dared to read the word of God in their own language. People were lost in idolatry, sin, hopelessness, superstition. And Martin Luther began working through the Bible in the original Greek language, recovered the gospel, and then he was, you know, standing on trial, could be put to death for what he had been teaching. And he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand I can do no other, and I will not recant any teaching unless I am convinced from Scripture. And the Protestant Reformation spread like wildfire throughout Europe. This is why we're Christians. This is why we're gathered here today, hearing the Word of God preached, because of what happened in that great revival. And at the end of it all, you know what Luther said? He said, I ate, and I drank, and I went to bed. The Word of God did it all. The Word of God is powerful. Friends, the same applies to our witness. We don't need to find any fancy method. We don't need to rely on some kind of psychological insight or use some kind of psychology to try to win non-Christians to Christ. We don't need to find a clever technique 
or some latest missions method, the latest seeker-friendly silver bullet. No, just simple, straightforward Bible. You want to share the gospel with others? Want to lead non-Christians to Christ? Just bring them to the Bible. Read the Bible with your friends. I mean, you know the testimony of our brother Abdullah, who's one of our members, came to faith in Christ during the pandemic, and another one of our members, Daniel Sierra, just met with him and read the Bible. And he came to know Christ. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that gospel comes to us in this word. From great scholars in the universities of the world to illiterate tribes in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, from aging grandparents to young children who are just learning how to read, through the ages, across the centuries, in every part of the inhabited world, God's word is alive and active. It is personal and powerful with the power to give life to the dead to bring sinners from darkness to light and from idols to serve the living God. And you might say, you might hear all that and say, oh, well, yeah, it has no effect on me. I'm listening to you, well, I've read, and I don't, know. I don't know. Well, you may not realize it, dear friend, if that's you, but it is affecting you. You may not even know how it is affecting you now. It affects you either for salvation or for judgment. You see, God's word finds you out. It reveals your thoughts and attitude. It exposes your innermost feelings. Even your indifference towards God is exposed by God's word. And God's word will judge you, make no mistake. Which leads to our third feature of scripture that should cause us to revere it and obey it. We must revere God's word because it is living. We must revere God's word because it is powerful. And third, we must revere God's word because it is penetrating. It is penetrating. Look again, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, last year, uh, I started watching on TV this show, uh, which was kind of a medical drama. And my wife did not like this at all. She was queasy with hospital stuff. I got completely engrossed, because right? it's showing surgeons in the operating room dealing with patients on the operating table and all of the drama that goes on with that. And it was just amazing. I'd never seen anything like this. That, you know, they, they asked for the 10 blade and this blade and they cut the patient open. And they have blades that even cut through bone. And then the patient is lying there on the operating table, his innermost parts exposed. You can look at all the insides firsthand, seeing things that, you know, even earlier their, their scans, the best uh, scanning, x-rays or MRIs or whatever, doesn't reveal what they actually see when they open someone up with the surgical knife. 
That's what God's word is like. Look, it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, some Bible teachers and the popular Bible teachers have taken this uh, verse, and this you know, it's always dangerous when you take one or two verses and try to establish a whole doctrine out of it. And they, they take soul and spirit and then say, oh, look, you know, we all have two parts Inwardly, it's a soul, we're composed of soul and spirit and body, and, and the soul is kind of, you know, your uh, emotions and your thoughts, and your spirit is something different that relates to God, and, and all of these things have been built on this one verse. That would be, I want to submit, a misinterpretation of what the passage says. We ought not to believe that. I don't think there's any biblical basis to say that inwardly we have both two different things, a soul and a spirit. That's like saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means we have four different parts to us, the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. No, I don't think that that's warranted from this verse. To say that the word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit is simply to say that it reaches to the very, very depths of who we are, deep inside. It exposes us inwardly. God's word penetrates us, assesses our hearts, discerns our thoughts, judges our intentions and our motivations. It reveals how we feel about God deep down. It has this effect. It cuts us open. And often, you know, you think about the surgeon's knife. The surgeon cuts people open and also finds the bad stuff that needs to come out. Tumors deep down that need to be cut out and excised. God's word has that healing effect on us. To cut us, well that's painful sometimes, and take out what is cancerous and what is bad spiritually. Christ speaks to us, judges us, opens us up and works in us through his word. The knife of God's word is wielded by the divine surgeon himself to bring healing. And so as one person said, when the Lord addresses us by his word, he deals seriously with us in order that he may touch all our inmost thoughts and feelings so there is no part of our soul that is not affected. How sharp is the knife of God's word? You know, it, it doesn't say it's just sharp like a two-edged sword, which were the sharpest swords that they had back then. He says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than the sharpest sword. It says it's the sharpest thing in the world. And here in this text, though, I want you to notice the emphasis. The emphasis is not on God's word healing us, like the surgeon's knife, although it does that. No, the emphasis actually is something different. It pictures God's word hanging over us like a blade. Not like the blade of the surgeon, but like the blade of the executioner. The blade of judgment that will deal the death blow of condemnation for our sins before the living God. How do we know that? Look again at verse 13. 
right after speaking of God's word as penetrating, he says in verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The living God is the judge of all men and women, the judge of heaven and earth, and we will give an account to him on the day of judgment. He sees all things, he knows all things, and we are bare, exposed, and helpless before him. He knows your deepest, darkest thoughts. He knows what's on your internet history and on your smartphone. He knows the thoughts that you have and feel about other people. There is nothing hidden from his sight. And it says here we are naked and exposed. Naked in the sense that nothing is hidden before this God. We are vulnerable before him. And when it says that we are exposed, the word that is used there actually has this image of you know, wrestling. I don't know if you do, any of you like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or whatever that is. But a wrestler who is over on top of his opponent in a chokehold where the neck is being grasped and the person is utterly helpless, lying bare. Or of a predator, maybe you've seen on Discovery Channel when a lion grabs its prey by the neck and the prey is completely helpless. That's how we are before God our almighty judge, and how terrifying it is to consider the possibility of being disobedient to him. You know, this can be very discomforting that God knows and sees all things. It's very discomforting if you have something to hide and if our hearts are not true to him. He knows. And so God's word is not something that we should mess around with or trifle, it, trifle with. And did you notice this transition between verses 12 and 13? This is very significant how it transitions here, all right? Verse 12 again, he says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then in verse 13, he says, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked to the, and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Did you notice how the author moved quickly from the word of God to speaking of God himself. And so some interpreters have you know, divided over this and there's been a big debate. Does the word of God in verse 12 refer to the eternal word of God, Jesus, the Son of God? Is it referring to Christ? Or is it referring to Scripture? That's the other view. Because you see, the author moves from speaking of Scripture, verse 12, in the very next verse to say, Him. And speaks of God's eyes. So is it speaking of the word of God, Christ, or is it speaking of the word of God, the Bible? And the answer is, yes. Christ works through his word. And I love how our brother Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, this shows us a great truth. How much that can be said of the Lord Jesus may also be said of the inspired volume. How closely these two are allied. How certainly do those who despise one reject the other. How intimately are the word made flesh and the word uttered by inspired men joined together. Jesus speaks 
judges, exercises his authority over us through scripture. And so we may know that wherever God is, his word is. And wherever God's word is, God is. Whatever God does, his word does. And whatever the word of God does, God does. When we encounter the word of God, we encounter God himself. And when we encounter God, we only encounter him through his word. God's word and his personal presence are inseparable. Where God's word is at work, the divine judge of heaven and earth himself is at work. God is the one who makes his word living. God is the one who works powerfully through his word. God is the one who penetrates our hearts and reaches into the innermost depths of our souls through his word like a scalpel, using it to pierce and divide and expose our secret intentions. And so when God speaks, dear friends, through his word, we must receive it with absolute trust, absolute obedience, absolute submission to his authority. Did you notice the end of verse 13 there? He is the one to whom we must give account. One day, Jesus will return. We'll all stand before him. One day you will stand before God as your judge. We will have to give an account. We cannot escape this. There is no way out from coming before him and giving an account. And that is a terrifying thing if our hearts have been cold and hardened and if we have been disobedient to our creator. But there is great hope because the same God who judges us by his word also saves us by that same word. You see, we're all sinners and we're all helpless. We all are naked and helpless, vulnerable, like the prey in the mouth of the lion before Almighty God. We all have to give an account. But God has been gracious because the central message of his living word, his powerful word is this, that God in his grace and mercy did not leave us in our sin but has sent his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God, the one who is called the word from all eternity was made flesh and lived among us. And he hung naked and helpless on a cross poured out his blood, died, was pierced to save all who would repent of sin and hear his word and flee to him in repentance and faith. And his word addresses you today. The risen Christ addresses you today through his word. Won't you hear his voice calling you, inviting you to come to him Hear his word, his powerful life-giving word, 
and find life and be saved from judgment. Won't you come to him this morning? I'd like to close with the story of another young man. Not in 1850, but just over 150 years later. This young man was living a life of wild debauchery and sin and rebellion against God. And through some circumstances in the providence of God, he ended up beginning to visit an evangelical church and a Bible study in that church and was challenged to read the Bible. And uh, this young man, you know, encountered many different worldviews. He was interested in examining and investigating the Bible to see if it corresponds to the claims of history and science. And as he began investigating the Bible, as is true for so many of us, he very soon found that it was the Bible that was investigating him. He heard and understood the gospel message and was wrestling with the claims of Scripture. And then uh, he had one particular night of complete wildness, drugged out, drunken, passed out. Somebody put him on a train. We were traveling. He was traveling with some friends. Woke up on the train 14 hours later, feeling ashamed and guilty for some reason, which had never felt like that before. And he had the Bible in his backpack that he had been investigating, decided to read. And I opened up the Bible. And I read 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. And right there in the train compartment, the light of divine grace flooded into my soul and he brought me from darkness to light and idols to serve the living God. And so I can say, as we all say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for my Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your awesome, life-giving, powerful, penetrating word. Have your way with us, O Lord, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.